Uh, you're all very welcome along and thank you for coming in this, this Sunday morning. Uh, a quick look at some of the newspaper headlines before we get started. Uh, the Sunday Independent. Brexit, first signs of a breakthrough, it says. Uh, Tisha Gleavaradkar has said that UK-wide solutions are possible to resolve the Brexit crisis. His comment in a Sunday Independent article today follows indications that senior DUP figures are now open to a soft Brexit. Yesterday, the DUP MP and Chief Whip Geoffrey Donaldson said the time for megaphone diplomacy on both sides was over. He said unionists were ready to engage and called for political maturity that the Brexit challenge demanded. Uh, also above the fold in the Sunday Independent, uh, Fine Gael cabinet critics of drink laws are not fit for office, says one of their cabinet colleagues, Shane Ross. He has launched a stinging attack on Fine Gael cabinet colleagues by insisting that ministers who criticised Garda enforcement of drink driving laws are, quote, unfit for government. This follows a cabinet meeting earlier in the week where Fine Gael ministers, including Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan, the man responsible for Gardaí, complained about an increase in early morning Garda checkpoints during the Christmas period. But Shane Ross has told the Sunday Independent it goes without saying that any minister who would oppose Gardaí enforcing the law would be unfit for government. Uh, the Sunday Times leads with a story that we'll be talking about in just a few minutes' time. May seeks treaty with Faradkar to bin the backstop. British Prime Minister Theresa May wants to offer a bilateral treaty to Ireland in order to remove the backstop from the EU withdrawal treaty and to prevent a hard border by other means. The proposal is part of May's plan B to salvage her Brexit deal. Aides think it would decontaminate the withdrawal agreement, that's their word, so that it could be supported by the DUP and Tory Eurosceptics. However, last night the Irish government indicated it will reject a bilateral treaty with Britain if it is proposed by the Prime Minister when she addresses the House of Commons tomorrow. Senior Irish government sources told the Sunday Times the proposal was not something we would entertain. Sunday Business Post, meanwhile. The Department of Health told of huge hospital overrun months before disclosure. Susan Mitchell has this story. She says the Department of Health was informed of massive cost overruns at the £1.7 billion National Children's Hospital project last August but the public wasn't told until December. The revelation will raise uncomfortable questions around transparency for the Department and Minister for Health, Simon Harris. In a statement, the Department said that it had kept the Minister informed of the escalating costs and it defended the delay in telling the public, saying there was still work to be done and a process to be concluded to reach a final figure. Uh, this is quite interesting. The Department may have known in August that the uh, it was going to overrun €1 billion, Euro, considering there were successive parliamentary replies uh, throughout all of September, October, November, uh, all talking about how it would just be one billion euro. Uh, meanwhile, the Irish Mail on Sunday uh, cocaine bust at fee-paying school Debs. Uh, Davy McCann has this story. A teenager was arrested on suspicion of possessing a large quantity of cocaine at the recent Debs dance of a top fee-paying school. The Irish Mail on Sunday can reveal the 18-year-old, believed to be a former student of the Dublin school, was detained by Gardaí at the Debs venue before being arrested at a Garda station two days later. It's understood that the youth had around 1,500 euro worth of cocaine on him, divided into smaller sachets. And finally, for now, the Sunday Sunday World, uh, Patrick O'Connell exclusive, the bashing industry. Uh, this, if you turn to page two, explains that convicted woman basher, that's their words, Jonathan McSherry, sports a new beard as he helps deliver knockoff clothes to women who are unaware of his violent past. So that's all in the papers. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But one story that isn't in today's papers because of the time that it broke last night uh, is the explosion last night outside a courthouse in Derry City. We have Alan Murray on the line, security correspondent based in Northern Ireland. Uh, Alan, thank you for taking our call this morning. What exactly do we know about this last night and is there any indication so far of who is responsible? 
Well, to the latter at the moment, no, but I don't think anybody would doubt that it's to do with dissident Republicans. Um, at about five to eight, the PS and I say that officers on duty um, in Bishop Street near the courthouse spotted a car which they thought was suspicious. They say about five minutes later, and that's around eight o'clock, a, a formal warning was given that there was a bomb in a car, this very car, and 10 minutes later there was an explosion. Now, it's not a huge explosion, there's not a huge amount of damage we, we, we can see from the pictures, but the car was obliterated literally, it's just a shell, and anyone who might have been near it at the time when it exploded, they would have been injured, they may have been killed, and obviously that's the big concern that such a small time window to evacuate the place was mm. given just 10 minutes. Yeah, particularly striking because this, this vehicle w- was spotted uh, acting suspiciously only at about 5 minutes to 8 and then within 15 minutes it had already been detonated. It is very little time for there to be any kind of a warning or, or a, a meaningful way of, of getting people out of harm's way. Yeah, the difficulty is that there were children at a youth club. There were, they think, around 150 adults in a Masonic hall. There were people in nearby hotels. So you're talking about maybe 300, 400 people, maybe a few more, about the area in general. So if the warning had been less or the bomb had malfunctioned and had exploded before the 10 minutes had elapsed, then you could have had many casualties, um, people unaware that there was an actual bomb there. So that underlines just how dangerous it was in the particular circumstances of a Saturday night in what is now a pretty normal area of um, Northern Ireland and Ireland in general. And the idea that this was uh, an explosive device that was clearly in some sort of hijacked car, what does that tell us about the capability of dissident Republicans, given that they can seemingly turn what might be a regular civilian car that they can steal it or hijack it and then wreak this sort of damage in a relatively small timescale. Yeah, well, I mean, that is the sort of INLA tactics going away back to the 1970s, 1980s, when the Irish National Liberation Army was active. And what they would have done was they'd have initiated something very, very quickly, which gave no time for intelligence information to be garnered from within the organisation, something maybe done within two hours. So very few people would have known about it, and that would that meant that it was virtually impossible to get any intelligence on it. Now, the dissidents have been very, very quiet the last number of years, uh, certainly 18 months. It's, there's very little that they've done beyond attack individuals in the nationalist community. And there have been sometimes grudge issues and other issues maybe involving drugs. But by and large, they haven't taken on the police. They haven't attempted to kill police. So this is something, uh, I suppose we would say, out of the blue. So at this early stage then, Alan, is is there any concern among security uh, agents up north of the border that this might then be perhaps the start of a slightly more escalated campaign by those dissidents? Or is it uh, yet too early to say whether this could be part of a trend? Well, that would be one worry that, yes, a group, a small group, maybe just in this area, in Derry, has said, well, we, we think we can do certain things here and not get caught, not be detected. But the worry would be, obviously, that there would be one or two others in other areas who may copy and say, well, we can do this as well. And obviously, without intelligence uh, on the plan, um, it's it's not possible to disrupt. They have been disrupted. Many, many people have been arrested. They are quite concerned of being heavily penetrated by MI5, which is responsible for intelligence gathering here now. And the worry would be that uh, they might be slightly emboldened by this last night and others might think, well, if we do it quickly, 
we might get away with it. Uh, interesting times. Alan Murray, thank you very much for giving us that update. That is Alan Murray, a security correspondent based in Northern Ireland. Uh, our newspaper panel is still with us, Dervil McDonald, Neve Lyons and John Isle. Uh, Dervil, I suppose it's just a reminder that no matter how much we think certain things are in the past, that there is always the possibility at very short notice that things could go very sour again. Yeah, and I think that this is something that is, you know, that people in London and elsewhere are entirely um, ignorant and blind to. My heart sank last night when I heard reports of it I just immediately kind of the, the image of Oma came to my mind that mm. kind of you no know, idea of a, so many people gathered in the street that again that the warning and the short amount of time and I have visceral memories of, of those types of bomb scars for, from growing up at home in the north during my youth but I think you know I don't want to directly kind of connect it to Brexit but obviously one of the the issues and the fears has been it would a Brexit a hard border any kind of changes would that be a magnet or an attraction and to paraphrase uh, someone else you know they haven't really gone away like what Alan was saying there was a lot of the distant activity has been sort of maybe quite kind of connected to targeting you know members of the nationalist community but a car bomb is a very very, very definitive um, act and one I suppose the only positive that can be gleaned is just the absolute widespread condemnation and, mm. and has been a good thing but it's just to kind of remind things that things are still kind of quite fragile and, and you know the, the Police Service of Northern Ireland and others have, whilst not overstating the prospect of return to violence, have warned of precisely this and I suppose as Theresa May stands up uh, tomorrow to to offer up <clears throat> um, her plan B, it's maybe just a reminder of that part of their kingdom that really things still aren't entirely perfect. Well, speaking of plan B, there is plenty about what the strategy might be, but actually very little salient detail. And it's very, very striking, Neve, that there is uh, so much around <laughs> what she proposes to do, but not exactly how mm-hmm. she proposes to, to fulfil all of what she wants to do. Um, she wants seemingly uh, a bilateral treaty with Ireland to bin the backstop. Uh, that's not really going to be a flyer, is it? No, it's it's terrifying that they're still that their heads are still there that they still think they can pick us off at the last minute like we are the EU we negotiate as the 27 and saying things like that makes me sound like some kind of government wonk I mean this is so obvious to anybody who's even remotely paid you know a bit of notice to these mm. talks. I mean, the other issue in the, in the pages today is is on the front page of the Sunday Independent, where Jeffrey Donaldson now for the first time is talking about a soft Brexit publicly. Yeah, we had a story in the paper during the week, very much along these lines, that was absolutely panned by Arlene Foster. So if Jeffrey mm-hmm. Donaldson yes. is now making the running on the idea that an all UK customs union is a flyer, and we're heading towards what we always thought we might be a sort of a Norway plus EEA plus customs mm. union situation yeah. he possibly might want to let her know he might uh, just what he, what he said by the way for people who have not seen it yet uh, Jeffrey Donaldson told the Sunday Independent and this is a quote I believe it is possible to arrive at a UK wide solution that protects both the integrity of the UK and the EU and avoids a hard border. Certainly such an outcome avoids a hard Brexit, but it doesn't mean the UK staying in the single market. A new free trade agreement with the EU should provide for customs arrangements that accommodate North-South cooperation without creating a regulatory border in the Irish seas. Effectively, there is a certain amount of cakeism there that they can have oh, yeah. everything that they want, but it's it's more moderate language than more we've heard moderate, in More moderate, and he's talking about, you know, we always heard that the... That the whatever politics, what, how does he describe it, the, the um, megaphone, megaphone diplomacy. diplomacy, that that was something I first heard up when the Taoiseach met Arlene Foster up in Belfast. I think it's about, it was even pre-backstop. Mm. It must be nearly two years ago now. That has always been 
them predominantly attempting to speak down to us like as if we're being obtuse in a way. Now, obviously, we are heading very quickly towards that situation that we've always wanted to avoid, that in wanting to avoid a hard border and putting a mechanism mechanism in place to do that, we could be heading towards the hardest of borders if Britain crashes out. But yes. one thing, and I've asked the Taoiseach this and I've asked the Thonish this and they steadily refuse to answer it. They say that we are still unlikely to see a hard Brexit. Neither of them will say whether or not it's more likely following what happened in the British Parliament last night whether we'll see a soft Brexit. Mm. Riddle me that. Why Why are they not willing to say that basically in Parliament it's looking quite likely they obviously don't like the backstop. There was a separate vote on that saying that they don't want to unilaterally withdraw from the backstop. Mm. But why is it that we're so afraid to kind of say to the UK if you're heading towards that plan certainly we will support you and that's a lot of coded language around that. We might as well just start saying Because the UK Parliament's not there. No, uh, there are two things that strike me about the coverage today. Firstly, that much like last week, anyone who was looking through the papers looking for some sort of the the intellectual basis behind what a plan B might be or what other way you avoid a hard border that Mm. isn't the backstop that's currently there, that there is no sign of it at all. Uh, And secondly, John, the idea that Britain now thinks that some sort of bilateral treaty with Ireland could be a runner, uh, appearing not to realise that Ireland can't negotiate on matters such as trade and customs because we are still part of the European Union. Yeah, exactly. And and that's a a non-runner. So if we just go back to what Jeffrey Donaldson said there, I mean, it seems like a surprise to us, <clears throat> given um, all of the agony that this debate has caused. And now they're they're coming around to the idea that, you know, people probably said they should have been there in the first place. But what we're ignoring is the internal dynamics of the Conservative Party, which has always been the problem here. So Theresa May can't go ahead with the sensible option, which is the Norway Plus or whatever you want to call it, a customs union, one that satisfies the EU and the UK at the same time, if it doesn't satisfy the Conservative Party. Mm. But let's remember how we got here in the first place, which was David Cameron calling a referendum to hold his party together. The whole point of that referendum was for them to um, be returned to government without the Liberal Democrats, mm. right? So that was all about the Tory party and not about the UK or the EU. So I don't see now And why then assuming that the referendum would be defeated and that <laughs> these European wounds in the party would be put to bed forever. Precisely. And I think there's such a rift in the Conservative Party now over this, this issue that they haven't settled amongst themselves yet what exactly they want to get out of Brexit. The idea that we can somehow say, oh, now, you know, we all agree uh, that a, a kind of a softer Brexit or a customs union makes sense. It might make sense to everybody outside the Conservative Party, but, but they're the ones who hold the whip here. But um, also, can I just say that, like, I know Gerald's kind of saying, you know, we, they don't know what they want, we don't know what they want. We kind of do, based on the votes that they have. we don't had. know how they want to achieve it. That's true, mm. but, I, I mean, I, I think it's, it gets to the point where and it's always been the case, moving just tipping slightly past this point allows us to actually get into the real talking about the relationship and the trade deal. Like no matter what happens, say even with the single market, which might be an anathema to the um, Brexiteers, that is actually what they will align themselves to. They will be as close as bedamned to a single market under any trade deal that they have. Mm. What was interesting was to see, you'd you'd miss him sometimes uh, earlier this week, chatting to Bertie O'Hearn and him saying, you know, what really needs to happen now is a series of indicative votes in the UK Parliament to actually shake down what it is, what they could do and what they won't do. But what's interesting in a week where a lot of Irish commenters are now sort of seen to be attacking the Irish position on the backstop, which is kind of interesting just to see the dynamic in some of the commentary um, in some of our own papers. There's one by Conor Brady 
reading the Sunday Times, mm. who brings us back to the origins of the backstop. And uh, what he says, he says, let there be no misunderstanding. This unsquareable circle is entirely of May's own making. It was her Lancaster House declaration that the UK would lead the customs union in the single market. That was a solo run, which was not discussed with her cabinet colleagues, nor was it flagged in the debates leading up, you know, to the referendum. You know, and now, look, I mean, the extent to which the Irish are being demonised over the backstop, and actually it was Ireland kind of who supported them in trying to, to find that, that it would not, I think we would have been happy with a Northern Ireland only yeah. backstop. Mm. They went with that full UK wide one. But, you know, what I f- f- feel, and I was, you know, just writing about this last week myself, was that, you know, unless, you know, outside of Ireland, they've no concept of the emotional and psychological impact of the border. Mm. You know, they've no kind of sense of the origins and the reasons why we cannot and will not have it. And what's interesting is now that you know, what even about, you know, the Conservative Party split, and they haven't. And uh, to be honest, I think there's, there's possibly another schism that needs to happen within that party and, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn hasn't been particularly helpful or um, uh, you know uh, it, it valiant in this regard either. It to be looking for there to be more of a schism within the Tories. Is that, is that, is that, you're not happy well, with the, the level thing. of I think, no, 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 I think what, what, what last week's vote in the UK Parliament showed was that the backstop is an issue but it is arguably potentially not the biggest issue when you actually look at what is happening in and amongst mm. the Tory well, party. People have been surveyed. So, you know, if the best Theresa May can come up with this weekend vis-a-vis her plan B is that we'll try and run a bilateral treaty with Ireland in circumstances yeah. when they must know we're part of the, <laughs> the remaining yeah, part we, of we the don't EU and don't have, we don't have the power that. to do that <laughs> is actually quite worrying. Uh, I'm struck again, Neve, that you mentioned you know how sometimes you know you and I and people who work in this industry sound like wonks when mm. we say certain things, but it's particularly striking that they just don't seem to get... And the Lancaster House speech that you mentioned when they were talking about wanting to have, you know, taking back control of our borders and controlling yeah. immigration and wanting to have a free trade deal and not having any hard border, just completely not recognising at all that those things are completely irreconcilable and um, that's so far down the line that still hasn't dropped yet. They're so tone deaf about the fact that no one's really blocking them from leaving. It's just that actually the the process through which you can unravel yourself through four decades of law, mm. it's tricky. And, you know, the, the truth of it behind all of this is I think Theresa May is now sort of looking more towards her party interests <laughs> and her country's interests. I mean, we saw that in this country with the breakdown of our own government under Fianna Fáil and the Greens. Uh, when we were going through a really tumultuous time with banking sector and the collapse of the economy, that often happens. And it's a real kind of tragedy within a tragedy whereby, you know, people start to sort of have to divide their loyalties when really she should just be focusing on this one issue. But I mean, look, whatever she says tomorrow, like the you, we have heard Simon Coveney repeatedly say that, you know, we have to kind of hang tough. Mm. It always does worry me that at the end of the day, we've had such support from the EU and we hear the government talking about this all the time. But does it get to a point where they look at us and go, guys, you've done your best, (laughs) given us our pat on the back and told us to move on? Uh, John Isle, there's the old line by uh, Robert Frost about how good fences make good neighbours, an argument which is uh, Owen Harris is taking some issue with on page 23 of the Sunday Business Post. He says that we have to move beyond backstops and talk like good neighbours. And in fact, uh, Sunday Independent, sorry, excuse me. Uh, And he says that um, Simon Coveney meeting the DUP, for example, was the only politician doing what he sees as being the best for republicanism or the best to try and mend relationships. Oh, that's fine. And we have to keep those in mind. I mean, we're stuck with each other one one way or the other, right? So, so they're, they're right beside That's us. They exert, <laughs> they exert a huge cultural influence. Um, and, you know, and just to just to point out another angle on this is sure. there's the whole economic relationship with, you know, Ian Guider is talking about in the Sunday Business Post today. 
today, you know, that, that um, European economy is slowing down a little bit. The growth isn't as strong as maybe people thought. And Brexit is coming at a bad time for the, for the continent-wide economy, just to put that in a, in a larger context there. But, but I want to... Like, I want to redirect what you're saying about Owen <laughs> Harris there, because I've seen him and then Dan O'Brien also in the Sunday Independent yes. today seem to be kind of taking up this sort of this sort of pro-British position. And I, and I see this happen with certain Irish commentators where when they get scared, right? Oh, no, we might actually have to, you know, follow better through. throw them a lifeline. Exactly. Yeah, we, we better help these guys because whatever problems that they're that they've caused are going to, you know, we're caught in the backwash. And, and I just think. Like it frustrates me to see that those sort of cracks appearing in, in in the commentary. I think they know better than that. It's not our responsibility to fix their their problem. We have our own national interests to look after. We're responsible in this inter- in instance, um, uh, being the frontier country in the EU with the UK. I don't really think the Taoiseach and the Taunashta can be doing anything other than, than what I, they I are doing. I think, though, what those commentators okay. are trying to do is appreciate. And again, it was something I wrote about during the week saying, wouldn't it be a tragic irony if the one thing we are trying to stop and prevent, which is the reemergence of a hard border, yeah. hard border infrastructure, would be... Precisely that in the event of a no deal um, or a crash out Brexit. And, you know, it's that I think is maybe what some of the the difficulty is. So what what do we do? Because we're not like another country in the European. We will be the only uh, country in the EU with a land border and left. And Mm. if it is a crash or no deal and you're down to WTO and you're down to, you know, things like, I mean, it's 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 not just, um, you know, what we kind of think of kind of the emotional pull of it. But there are things, you know, in terms of customs and and border checks and around health. And we saw during, you know, the 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 BSC crisis, everything. There are going to be realistic things that misguided then of the Irish government under both Enda Kenny and Leo Riker to say that this is an issue of Britain's own making and it's up to them to find a workable solution. Given all of those hands-on effects that it will have for Ireland, the fact there could be, you know, 800,000 or so Irish citizens behind this mm-hmm. hard border that they don't want to be there behind, should we not have had some responsibility or some role in trying to make this work instead of just saying, you broke it, you fix it? No, no, because I think it was more than that because the one thing that we have been articulating which has fallen on deaf ears in the UK is the Good Friday Agreement. Agreement. Mm. You know, that is the, the, the that is the internationally signed up agreement that has to be protected there. What we saw last night um, in Derry, and I hope there isn't any more, were shimmers, were reminders mm. of where we have come from. And I think that, that there is a, you know, there's a, an indifference. And I've seen this because I travel a lot to the UK for work and for personal reasons. I have great friends who are hardcore Brexiteers who are just sort of just silent kind of on on the Irish question, you know, and I just kind of think that that risk, however small, is real. And so I think that that's what the Irish government has been trying to do is to protect the Good Friday Agreement. There have been many people, both on this island and across the Irish Sea, who kind of want to disregard the Good Friday Agreement. I think that point that, ha- that both um, Harris and O'Brien both make in their pieces today, though, is that, and this is true, there are constitutional issues about Northern Ireland being a rule taker from the European Union when the rest of the jurisdiction um, in the UK isn't. Now, there's always this talk that we're trying to kind of force the border poll situation, which I genuinely don't no. think anybody is apart from Sinn obviously Féin. Sinn Féin, mm. which is party policy and has long been so. But it, 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 you, it does start to come around to the idea that, you know, if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck if they continue to kind of you know take those rules it it leads us towards a path where the only obvious solution is the big breakaway now like we've done a lot of polling on this um, the support is there at the moment Mm. in a very sort of tentative way including among some unionists 
Um, but our job in this country to begin that conversation and start talking about the change of Ireland's national anthem, what way would the flag look? Like that is something that for us on our side would take years. There's a big anniversary coming up um, in Northern Ireland and I agree, you cannot deal with these issues in 68 days but mm. there has been and it's been touted in the UK Parliament and elsewhere that if there's a crash order or no deal Brexit, it's going to accelerate the debate about a united Ireland. And I've always felt that, look, I mean, in 2021, which is the 100th anniversary of the birth of the state of Northern Ireland, a, a state that arguably set up to protect the Protestant uh, majority at yeah. that time, in 2021, um, the demographics will shift. They will continue to shift. I've always felt that a debate, but because one of the beautiful things about the Good Friday Agreement, it was allowed people like me, a Catholic who came from Newry, like when I was younger, you wouldn't, you would have been terrified to identify with any sort of a British identity. The Good Friday Agreement comes along and it allows you to be British, Irish, both, neither, mm. to say you're from, you're Northern Irish, which was just really, really emerging as a beautiful yeah. standalone little identity. And that, and that debate about a united Ireland is something a little bit like the last two major referenda we've had um, in terms of the abortion referendum and the marriage. This, uh, the marriage equality referendum though we need proper facilitated inclusive discussions where people have full information and I think what Brexit is doing and the prospect of a hard Brexit is doing is reforcing people to align with different identities it's hardening positions and that is that is where the greatest risk lies and that I think is what's really really unfair because the peace process is generic it was moving there was lots of mm. lots of okay. little victories that people maybe didn't realise were being won and I think and somebody who comes from there and loves it is that is what is terrifying uh, You mentioned the prospect. abortion referendum we will talk about that after a break which I do urgently need to get to just so listeners know uh, Dominic Rabb the former Brexit Secretary has been on the BBC this morning morning, he has suggested that while he was the Brexit secretary, he had had conversations with Simon Coveney where, quote, there was an opening to have some sort of exit from the backstop uh, negotiated into the deal. He says that was ruled out by the less moderate Leo Varadkar. A spokesman for Simon Coveney this morning has said that Dominic Rabb is incorrect once again. Coveney always told Rabb uh, he is a non-runner. That spokesman, uh, long-standing listeners of the show might remember, is a guy called Chris <laughs> Donoghue, whoever that is. He's disappeared. Um, into whoever he is, no idea yeah. where he's gone to. Um, there is quite a bit of coverage in today's papers about the application of the new um, abortion law, particularly as highlighted in the case that was mentioned in Dáil Éireann during the week and how um, it has raised some concern or highlighted some of the ambiguity sometimes uh, in how um, fetal abnormalities are diagnosed and it does seem Neve, uh, we were talking about this just off air a moment ago mm. um, that obviously the law has to be black and white about what it permits and what it doesn't yeah. but medicine isn't quite as black and white, there is a spectrum and that it basically means that a lot of cases that we thought we might be catering to uh, in introducing the new law and in voting for the referendum last year are actually not being catered to. Yeah, and I suppose when I when when this was passed, when the legislation went through, and even when the referendum was passed, we sort of had a broad outline of of what was going to be done. I thought that this would solve the question for ever. Really, mm. I never thought that there'd be a situation where the so-called open abortion for any reason. But I'm starting to think now that this actually this legislation has some pretty serious flaws. How so? Well, the nine to 12 week one is the one that hospitals appear to be having the most difficulty with. So at the moment, it seems to be working quite well at a community perspective where GPs up to nine weeks are able to administer the pills. Um, we know that protection of life during pregnancy for extreme emergency cases was working well because mm. that had been underway since 2014. And every year, there's kind of 
a couple of dozen. Fewer than 30 yeah. take place. Um, and they are the most extreme ones. I mean, that's obviously in a situation where there could be mental health issues um, or there could be very, very serious issues with the, with the mother's health. It's this idea that a doctor under fear of punishment of 14 years in jail has to make a, a drastic decision about whether a baby can survive um, or or will die within 28 days. That's just not something that mm. you can be ever certain about. I, I actually I disagree slightly. <clears throat> uh, one, I um, without obviously knowing long distance of being a health corps um, or even a, a legal uh, one at that, but First of all, we're in the very, very early stages of this legislation. I think that although well-intended, the biggest mistake that Simon Harris made was declaring that services would be in operation essentially from day one. Mm. There should have been a three to six month period to allow for guidelines to be implemented, for systems to be put in place. And I think it's a credit to those um, uh, medics who are assisting women under the legislation that they're doing it. But as I understand it, like, I mean, there are actually a relatively number of small, possibly six conditions that qualify for a fatal fetal abnormality. There are obviously outside of those six very kind of strict conditions, cases where where there are, um, you know, where there might be severe fetal abnormality, mm. but not fatal. And it seems to me, and, you know, sometimes when things come into the doll, the A side kind of come in, and maybe we don't know the backstory of, of that, but yes. was this a case where it was a severe fetal abnormality that perhaps a multidisciplinary team perhaps took a view that because of that very strict, you know, 28 days, will, is it likely that the fetus will survive beyond that? Mm. That maybe did they take a view individually or collectively that maybe initially they thought it fell within the, the grounds of the um, the legislation, but perhaps then maybe on a different sort of consideration. But I think... Which only goes to highlight somehow the, the, the ambiguities of the fact but, that there's a spectrum no, of two, speaks, two different consultants. What it actually speaks to is what the medics and the clinicians were saying all along in the lead up to it is that, you know, pregnancy can be complex and, the, you know, they have to analyse and, and consider all of these things. The best case would be putting perhaps a multidisciplinary team together. I think what has been really, really unfortunate is that in this very, very early days of the legislation, a high profile case has come in which undermines confidence in it. And again, I think, although well intended, what we should have had was perhaps a three to six month period to allow our clinicians, not just in the major tertiary centres, um, but throughout the country uh, to deal with that. But also, you have to remember, you know, we've just emerged from a 35 year constitutional ban and it is going mm. to take time to perhaps tease out um, the legislation and in due course if it's not operational to go back and review it either through principal legislation or through supporting guidelines. Uh, on the point about um, how long it might have taken to, to roll this out one of the things that I was most struck by because I was following this story on Thursday and reporting on it for, for TV and it was baffling that the Coombe Hospital was appearing to suggest that it wasn't necessarily any particular instance in this case, that it was simply as a systemic thing, they were not yet offering these services. So irrespective of whether someone qualified, that they were just not in a position to provide it. Only then, a few hours later, for the Department of Health to actually come out and say in black and white, no, yes, they are, which left all sorts of, of question marks. Um, John Isle, I suppose all of this only goes to highlight how no matter what the best intentions of a lot of legislators that sometimes in the rush to get these things through um, that some of the, the, the more difficult cases that people thought they were catering to simply aren't going to be and that the, the law is not the panacea that many people had intended it or suspected it to be. I think that's part of the problem here is that the campaign for the referendum was a rights-based campaign but the legislation is always going to 
try to take account of all the various contingencies, which of course you can't do. You, what, you, what happens then when you try to detail all of the possible contingencies in, instead of taking a principles-based approach mm. is that you create a lot of bureaucracy around this. And I, and the, I sort of shivered a little bit, Derval, when you, when you said, well, maybe we should have multidisciplinary teams to look at this. I mean, no, that just creates... Uh, clinicians typically come together as colleagues, but maybe if there are complex cases. That, that's what I mean. Obviously, th- th- that's no, I understand what, what you mean about the complexity, but yeah. if you go back to what the referendum was about, it was about a woman's right to choose. And it seems like mm-hmm. what, what has happened now is we've shifted it yeah. to what works best for the medical establishment as opposed to what works best for women, and which to me... the reason that the Rotunda, for whatever reason, have decided the ministers had to write to them because they've decided they're only going to offer a service up to 11 weeks. That is a chilling effect. That is the legislation not functioning as it's intended to function. I mean, Justine McCarthy has a brilliant interview. Yeah, a, r- a really, yeah. really good interview with a couple from, from County Cork, I think, uh, who uh, made the trip to the UK last month uh, because they were they had a pregnancy which had a severe fetal abnormality mm. which didn't qualify obviously at the time or subsequently under Irish law. Yeah, I mean the the there are pictures in, in, in the paper today. Ruth and Sean O'Sullivan. She's a nurse, so she obviously has a medical background and has some knowledge um, of the type of situation that her little daughter would have faced had she been born. She was diagnosed with Patau syndrome, which is known as trisomy thirteen. She also had a heart condition, um, and they described it as as a mosaic condition. So they didn't quite know what areas would have affected her. She mm. went to the UK, um, the, she was induced and the the little girl was delivered. Now, they just were told by the clinicians over in the UK, you know, you've done the right thing. We're glad we were able to look after you. Um, but, I mean, obviously the legislation was never intended to have been in place at this point. But what you're looking at here is if, if these people had presented kind of a little bit later on, how would our system have coped with a situation where, as they say, you know, what, what an interesting way of putting it, a sort of a, a mosaic condition mm-hmm. whereby so many things up in the air where no one can really be certain about it. Yeah. That it is just striking when there's so much ambiguity around it, and everyone can make their best clinical call. No but doctor can say for absolute can say certainty. For certain, no, um, but, the, but that ambiguity John. creates scope for institutional resistance, mm. right? So we get further and further away from what we were trying to achieve in the in the referendum, and tie ourselves up in knots to the point where nobody is willing to make an affirmative decision. And really, what it should bounce back to is that the person who should you know hold the responsibility is the pregnant woman ultimately and that, that doesn't and seem to be in, 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 that was what, what in was this intended. case yeah. Speaking of clinicians and the places that they work the lead story in the Sunday Business Post today would be particularly striking because there's been so much written in the last few weeks about the cost of the National Children's Hospital originally supposed to be 465 million or so then 685 then I mean, 1 billion came up with the 465 <laughs> it's, it's an oddly <laughs> precise figure ever built it? a hospital for 400 million Well if you were to ask Jimmy Sheen on page 19 of the Sunday Business Post he could probably say that it was doable but what is interesting about the story that Susan Mitchell has today is to suggest that the Department of Health knew and was informed as as far away as last August that the €1 billion Euro figure would be overrun. And that's striking to me, Neve, because no doubt, like yourself, you've, we've seen Leo Varadkar in leaders' questions for so long so recently and he was giving the figure on the record in 1. September 4. and October. Um, well, it was even £1 billion Yeah, before, it was £1 billion. Yes. Then, Do you know the way at the moment now, we're, we've, they've gone on the record at one4 but it's yeah, but it's actually been told 1. 1. 7, 7, and yes. we haven't been told that. But, but it, when we were being told it was one4 and that was an update from 1.0, mm. in fact, the Department of Health knew all along that it was at least 1.2. 1.2. So where's, then, the, where's the transparency Yeah. Here? And now we're being told like it's all down to a few cables that were too many were bought or too few were bought or something like this has the classic kind of uh, government um, stamp of port tunnel, PPARs, 
e-voting like oh, we are voting. already walking ourselves into a, an inquiry or a tribunal of some description here yes because I think, you know, people eventually manage to come around the, the co-location and what will eventually be a tri-located hospital because the coom will eventually be subsumed into this. So it's going to be one of the most amazing hospitals in the world. The only problem is the more expensive it gets and you hear politicians constantly saying, well, let's remember the children. That's fine. Mm. But that means that the running costs of the hospital will continue to be. And as we know at the moment, even the fact that they're building such an expensive facility, that's going to take away from services that are being offered this year and next. So the running cost of that hospital, if that ends up being the most expensive hospital to run in the world, then it's going to take away quite clearly yeah. from my colleague uh, Richard Kern has a, a really interesting uh, column on it where he talks about room to improve and he says you know that you know obviously delays politicking the factor but the central problem remains fundamentally with state procurement and capital expenditures what is the budget and what you do if it goes over budget and he looks ahead he just says look when it comes to this building roads hospitals tunnels everything the basic financial principles that apply to other projects do not seem to apply and he looks ahead I think with some concern and says well what are we going to do about the government National Development Plan, which has earmarked 115 billion of capital investment, and if we entertain anything like the overruns in the National Children's Hospital, mm. we may have to revise that uh, figure uh, consistently. But just you know, I, I started out my career as a health correspondent many, many years ago, and I remember you know the first time that health spend went in, kind of whatever from nine billion into ten billion, and it was like the biggest thing ever. Mm. And you look, you know, th- this is the history of how you know and oh, yeah. in. Incredible, you know, and um, and and look, we we are going to have huge challenges looking even ahead to our own dem- demographics, um, a rapidly aging, you know, aging population, which is going to you know increase pressure on pre- uh, on services. But I really think it's it's a governance issue. How can we just keep, keep seeing these spectacular gains? And if you read nothing else today on it, you should read um, uh, Susan Mitchell's extraordinary essay, I think, <laughs> on it uh, in today's Sunday Business Post. Really kind of going back and looking at the um, at the origins, you know, of the whole thing and. Mm. It, you know, she like she calls the the, the health budget the runaway uh, train, and what she ends with is this saga is over. The National Children's Hospital is going to be a difficult birth. Uh, well, quite the poetic way of putting it, um, John. I just that point that that Derville touched on there. We have this this gargantuan plan of capital spending for twenty forty, and if one major flagship thing is going four times what we thought it would originally cost, it doesn't bode well for all those other highways and byways and facilities that we thought we were going to get in the next ten years. No, and I wonder about the, those sorts of projections. You know, out to a year like twenty forty anyway that you can really predict your your spending. But I I think just for everybody, you know, should keep in their heads that that cost overruns seem to be the norm as opposed Mm. to the exception. Mm. We always treat it like the exception. So maybe we should just have a sort of political coefficient to every spending plan and multiply it by a factor of three. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of future planning at least. There's some more realistic budgets coming down the line. Look forward to Pascal Donahue standing up next October and saying, right, so we have one billion euro, which means we can spend 300 million and the rest yeah. of it is like soaked but up we, somewhere. We have important infrastructure to build out. Obviously, the Children's Hospital, which has been a 20, 25 year saga at this stage now. We're also looking at our new national uh, maternity hospital. We do have important infrastructural things to, to roll out and we have to factor in, especially as John referenced earlier, because the world and even in Europe financially is getting a bit wobblier. Well, uh, well this is the, tri- the tricky thing is, and it's not, it's not that we're, we're tipping into recession it's just that the growth that we were maybe mm. expecting isn't, 
isn't being delivered. Yeah. So instead of two and a half percent, it's one and a half percent. But compounded over time, that makes a, that yeah. makes a big and difference. And it means their scope to borrow yeah. and all of that is all constrained as well. Uh, there is plenty uh, acres, uh, so much so that you could even use it to uh, heal a cut while shaving. Uh, written about Gillette and toxic masculinity. Uh, Derville, you are making the case that any time that Gillette put out an ad, the likes of which tell men just to basically not act the maggot uh, that there's actually a business case No, do you know what what was really really interesting about the Gillette ad and actually there's been a bit of a, a development because Lagarde another luxury brand has kind of come back with its own version was you know Oh what's that one? It, it's a, 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 an exclusive sort of watch brand and it's kind of come back with an ad which is just like you know we like men we support men so it points out that 80% of suicides are men that you know I think it's a US ad 93% of people who die in active service are men so it's kind of a much more sort of a supportive thing but the thing about Gillette the biggest winner in all of this Mm. is Gillette and there is a kind of thing you know what was interesting was that the reaction and particularly you know don't read below the line but if you do uh, are tempted to read below the comment line was that actually it actually showed why we need to have that conversation what I was interested more in is in the business case for uh, sorry throw my pen away um, (laughs) it's called fury which is called the market for (laughs) virtue so basically when executives pursue ethical behaviour. There's a lot of research says they do it because there is a business case um, for it and it's something that my colleague who you might be speaking to later today, Gina London yeah, looks at and she says the Gillette ad is it capitalism's new face or merely you know lip service. So she says that you know just like kind of when people, companies come out about green and sustainability and everything else, when they run campaigns like this mm. is there a kind of a, a deeper alternative? So for me one of the things I would look at is you know I'd like to say to Gillette, why are there difference in pricing between men and women's products that are, seem yeah. remarkably Similar it's exactly or, the same razor, but you know, with a sculpted pink handle. How, how many women are on your board? How many, you know, women are in the, or, you know, to kind of just kind of look beyond it. I think there is nothing wrong with brands stepping into those debates. They have to be prepared for the backlash. I don't worry about the kind of backlash from Piers Morgan or whatever. He's just a pure entertainer. But it just, it uh, what I think it does show, and I think probably people wouldn't disagree, is that, and what I find particularly in the wake of the Me Too movement was that no sooner had the ink been sort of uh, dried on that campaign was the backlash against that, which makes me show that beneath all the surface, there is, are actually still very, very big, deep cultural wars that we're harbouring. And sometimes it takes very, very little to bring it to the surface. But in terms of starting a conversation, I thought the Gillette ad was harmless. And sometimes I think, you know, that men themselves don't realise that they are the biggest victims of a toxic masculinity. I spent many days and would have seen you down there in the four courts in our criminal law courts. And the single largest group of victims of homicide and violence are typically young men by other men. Mm. You know, and what's wrong with starting a conversation conversation um, around it. John Isle, I don't know whether you're the sort of person who stands at a barbecue and sees two young lads knocking the heads off each other and just says boys will be boys but does, does seeing an ad like that give give you or anyone around you cause to sort of think about your behaviour or are you likely to ever change the way in which you approach the world because a razor company told you to? It, no, not, obviously not because the razor company tells me to but as someone who works in corporate communications what fascinates me about this is that Gillette has made a decision <coughs> to try to meet their customers where they are, right? So it's not, it's not the people, so I'm I'm 45. It's not the people who are a generation older than me that Gillette is looking at, right? That that generation is dying. They won't be customers for much longer. G- Gillette is looking at people like my son, who's 11 years old, who's going to be shaving in a few years. And, and how do I talk to those people? And it's a different conversation you have to have with that generation than, than you had before. So Gillette's the, the sort of um, company that used to advertise during the Super Bowl mm. and, you know, sort of chiseled men and, you know, rubbing yeah. their clean shaven face after using the product and everything has been their go-to for a long time. But that can't be your approach forever and and the 
the discourse around masculinity is changing. Whether whether we like it or not, it doesn't mean positively and negatively. Yeah, absolutely. And so what I what I thought was interesting about the Gillette ad was was actually supportive of the sort of um, world. That it was recognizing the world that boys have to live in that's been created by the men who are older than them, right? So the world in which somebody's beating your face in at a barbecue and all of the men <laughs> who are in a position to stop it are nodding along saying boys will be boys, yeah. right? That's a scary position to be in as a child, right? And what's reassuring is in, in, the, in the frame that comes later is when one of the fathers steps in and exerts his masculine authority to say, actually, stop this. Don't hurt each other. That's not what we do. That's not how men behave, right? Which takes a different kind of strength. So I think Gillette is affirming masculinity in that way, but also saying men can support each other. Men deserve support. Men deserve to be cared for. And what are their products about? They're self-care products. So I think it's, it's perfectly on brand. It's not a change for Gillette. It's actually saying the same thing in a different way. Uh, Neve Lyons, I know that you are massively moved by this campaign. <laughs> I didn't watch that video. And then your producer, Stephen Jordan, said, we're going to be talking about Gillette. And I went, I wonder could I still avoid watching it? Because I hate stories about people who are offended by silly things. I don't get offended by silly things. And whenever I look at a thing like that, and I've read a lot about it now, I, w- I, I flip it. And I go, if there was an ad, you know, about women. Mm. Mean girls. We yeah. need mean girl ads, definitely. Would I be offended by that? No, I wouldn't. I Neve Horan has a good piece today where she kind of flips it and she sort of says, what about toxic femininity? Some people would say that many ads that are aimed at females are actually somewhat socially conditioning you mm. and that they don't do it quite kind as explicitly, of, but, but they've done it for years. Do you know when you see years. like there's, there's um, the famous Hunky Dory's ad. Do you remember the girl who was wearing very little oh, yes. to advertise mm. crisps? And it was like, yeah, but there's been a guy in the Diet Coke ad or the mm. what's that box of chocolates ad for a very long time that we're very little was little fully covered man. up he was, he was fully covered he was up jumping in your window hashtag you two other, uh, <laughs> other, <laughs> other soft drinks chocolates oh. and methods of daytime TV friendly appropriate titillation are uh, available elsewhere but do I think the more the, 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 there's a bigger thing and it particularly came up around the Me Too and it is actually actually because you know youth can be tough on girls and boys and for different reasons but how do we find better ways to have conversations around issues like consent around issues like respect so one of the things, you know, like, I mean, if you wealth whistle at a woman, you know, some people say, oh, sure, take it. It's a compliment. But if you're a woman walking down the street or a young girl walking down the street on your own and there's a group of men, you may perceive that as highly intimidating behaviour. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing wrong. I think anything that sparks a conversation is a good thing. What worries me sometimes, and you've seen a lot of kind of the chan for alt-right, you know, kind mm. of um, very, very kind of, you know, anti-women or anti... Look, look, I'll give you one example last night, which you'll see the uh, Covington Catholic boys who surrounded yes. a man outside talking about that outside too, Gina that, London, in a few minutes. You know, and that was terrifying to look at. It's, it's like a lynch mob mentality from another time. And I think that sometimes we have to be careful. Sometimes beneath the surface, there are tensions. And I actually think that if something like Gillette sparks a bit of a conversation around broader issues, why not? On that note, uh, we're going to have to leave it there because I'm completely out of time. My thanks to all three of you. Dervil MacDonald, INM's group business editor. And apologies to Kevin Dorr for demoting him earlier. Uh, <laughs> Neve Lyons, who is the political editor of the Ireland edition of The Times. And John Isle, former markets editor of the Sunday Business Post, now the head of communications for Good Body. Thank you all very much for joining me this morning. Uh, Back with lots more for you in just a moment.